0: Mark chapter 12. Very interesting text this morning. It's going to bring up some questions about eternity for us, about what happens when we die. We're going to be starting Mark chapter 12 verse 18. Mark 12:18 reads like this. And some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no offspring." And the second one took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Jesus, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Hmm. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? Because you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they, are neither, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Father, we would ask that through this, your word this morning, you would keep each one of us individually from mistakes with regards to you, who you are, and eternity. The answers are right here in your word, and we're asking that this morning, God, you would make them very clear to us that there would be no uncertainty, no ambiguity, but God, through your clear word, by your spirit, you would speak to us now. And that you would move in our hearts and the things that we hear would have an effect upon our lives. That people that don't know you here today would receive you as their Lord and their Savior and enter into a new relationship and walk in forgiveness and look forward to the promise of heaven. And that we who know you would live in light of the reality of eternity. So teach us in your word and make us doers of the word. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. An interesting text before us, and we're going to do two things this morning. First, we're going to address some of the particulars of the text. And then secondly, we're going to address some of the theological issues raised by the text. The first particular is, who are the Sadducees? It says in verse 18 that there were Sadducees who came to him, and they did not believe in the resurrection. That is the resurrection of people from the dead, life after the grave. Who were these people? Well, the Sadducees were one of the prominent religious parties in Israel during that time. They were made up mostly of wealthy priests, and they kind of considered themselves to be the religious aristocrats of the day. Josephus, the historian, tells us that they looked down upon people, and they were generally rude to others. Why wouldn't they be? They didn't believe in life after death. The defining mark of the Sadducees was that they didn't believe in the supernatural at all, other than that there was a creator God. Beyond that, they didn't believe in the existence of the spirit within man. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in bodily resurrection, as it says in our text, and we'll define that in a few minutes. They didn't believe in final judgment. They didn't believe in rewards or penalties. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They did not believe in the supernatural or life after the grave. The reason for this is because they were a group that only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They're often referred to as the book of Moses. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only accepted those as being Scripture, as being the Word of God. And they thought, if you can't find a doctrine there, they didn't believe in it. And according to their study of those first five books, they didn't see taught anywhere in there the resurrection of the dead or certain other supernatural things, so they rejected them altogether. With that background in mind, they came to Jesus, and they put to him a hypothetical question based on Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. It says in Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother in order that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. But if a man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then her brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. That's the background for the question posed to Jesus by the Sadducees. They had a scriptural background, but they came with a hypothetical question. This uh, practice of The brother taking the wife of the deceased brother was done for several reasons in that time. Number one, as mentioned in verse 6, 7, and 9 of Deuteronomy 25, it was done that the brother's name might not be blotted out from Israel, that there might be a prodigy, that his name might continue on in Israel. The family would continue. But it was also a means of protecting the widows economically. In that culture, women were not allowed to earn money for themselves. And so without a husband or a child, women were in a bad situation. It was actually practiced in other ancient cultures as a means of protecting the widows economically. That is the basis for James chapter 1, verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, that you visit widows and orphans in their distress and keep yourself unstained by the world. The Jews had this sense because of the word of God and the culture in which they lived in that they were to care for such people. And so the Sadducees come with a hypothetical question that we saw in verse 18. I mean in verse 19. So the guy dies. He's got no kids. Marries a brother. The brother dies. Got no kids. Marries a brother. The brother dies. Got no kids. Marries a brother. All the way through seven brothers. Now Jesus in the Resurrection, and no doubt they did that because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They're trying to trip him up here, they're trying to trap him, they're trying to show that he's some sort of false messiah who doesn't know theology. In this so called resurrection, who's she going to be married to? <laughs> got you now, Jesus. (laughs) Who's she going to be married to? Because she had seven husbands on earth. She can't have seven husbands in heaven. It would be a sin for a Jewish woman to have seven husbands. What's she going to do? Get to heaven and then divorce six of them and go back to the first one? That would be a sin as well. Seems like the perfect argument, as most hypothetical arguments do. And so they said, because the resurrection, that is heaven, Does not make sense to us, we reject it. Their finite minds didn't get it. It didn't fit into how they saw this world work. But you need to understand at the outset that eternity is not like this world. Things don't work in heaven, and I might say things don't work in hell like they work on planet Earth. It's a different existence altogether. But nevertheless, we don't understand it with our finite minds, therefore we reject it. Many people are in that position today. They reject the truths of God because they simply can't comprehend them. God is not meant to be comprehended by you. He is meant to be worshipped by you. There's a vast difference. And I love the response of Jesus, verse 24. Jesus said to them, "Is not the reason that you are mistaken because you don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. I love that. You know why you guys are dumb, he says to them? Because of your ignorance of the Bible and your ignorance of the power of God. Listen, it's okay for a time to be ignorant of the word of God. It's okay for a time to be ignorant of the power of God until you start making bold assertions against God in your ignorance. And then you're in trouble. God has given us his word The world is to study it, to discern truth from error. Concerning those two things, ignorance of God's word and ignorance of God's power, R. Kent Hughes says, almost all theological error can be traced to one or the other. Many people who are outside the church, not this church, the church universal, have a lot of theological errors, a lot of misunderstandings about God. Either they don't understand the Bible or the power of God. And yet even within the church today, even within the evangelical church, there's a lot of people that have theological errors, misconceptions about God and the way he moves in our world and eternity so on and so forth because they haven't studied the word of God and they don't submit to the power of God. Bear in mind, the Sadducees were not unbelievers. They believed in a creator God, but they got much wrong. I want you guys to know 2 Timothy 2.25. We'll put it up on the PowerPoint. This is one of my life verses. You ought to know it. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who need not be ashamed, but handles accurately the word of truth. Listen to that phraseology. Be diligent, or as the NIV puts it, I believe, work hard. To present yourself approved to God. In other words, God is the one to whom you are accountable. Okay? Work hard to present yourself accountable to God as a workman who need not be ashamed but handles accurately the word of truth. The very phraseology there paints a picture that when it comes to God's word, we've got to put some work into it. We've got to take some time to study it, some effort to understand it, aided by the Holy Spirit, no doubt. Apart from being born again in the spirit, working through the word of God, you can't have an understanding. But there's also got to come a commitment on your part, a commitment to the scriptures and to studying it, to have some understanding. The charge to the Christian is that we handle accurately the word of God. Because many don't do this, they fall into theological error. What is the remedy for being in that situation that the Sadducees were in? It is a careful, reasoned, Study of Scripture. It's a responsibility of every Christian. Now I want you to note that Jesus will respond to their question with Scripture. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses? We saw last week when he gave the parable about the vineyard there and Israel missing the Messiah that he said to them in verse 10 of chapter 12, haven't you read? The stone that the builders rejected shall become the chief cornerstone. Over and over again, when people challenged Jesus, he responded with the word of God. Haven't you read? Don't you understand? Don't you see it in the scriptures? In so doing, he will not only answer their question. But he will reveal to them that the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead, life after death, has always been in front of their faces if they would just have their faces in the word of God. There are so many people today that doubt some of the primary doctrines of Christianity, some of the primary things that we've got to understand about God, and yet they don't have their face in the word of God. And if you'll open it up, you'll find out that the answers are here. You'll find out that we have a reasonable faith. But if you ignore the word, you've got no basis to stand upon. You're open game for the enemy, for his fiery darts, for his missiles of doubt in your life. To begin to doubt this and that and the other. Listen, saints, open up the word of God. These men were in error because they did not work hard to present themselves approved to God as workmen that need not be ashamed but handle accurately the word of truth. There is no careful and close examination of the word. Now, in verse 25, Jesus begins to answer. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry, that is, they don't choose to get married, nor are they given in marriage. There's not a marriage arranged for them. But they are like the angels in heaven. We're going to come back to that verse at the end, and we're going to explore its every meaning. We'll be right back to that. But I want you to see how he answers with a word in verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, Haven't you read in the book of Moses? Remember, they only believe the book of Moses, so Jesus appeals to the book of Moses, the first five books there, and he's quoting here Exodus chapter three, verse six. Haven't you guys read in Exodus chapter three, verse six, when Moses had the burning bush experience that God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. When God spoke that to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, Abraham had departed physically some time ago. He had died. Isaac and Jacob had both died. And yet God says, I am their God. Not, I was their God, but now they've perished. God said to Moses, centuries after their deaths, I am their God which means that he is not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. Therefore, they must have been living when God spoke to Moses. Therefore, according to the logic of Jesus, appealing to the word of God, there is life after death. I am the God of the living. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. I want you to notice that Jesus' entire defense hinged upon one little word in one verse. So many times when we read the Word of God, we give it but a cursory reading at best. We just kind of breeze through it. You know, we got the one year Bible sort of mentality. I gotta get through these three chapters, I gotta do it in 15 minutes before I gotta go to work, and just we just breeze right through it. Nothing wrong with reading the Bible in a year, that's wonderful. Nothing wrong with reading three chapters at a sitting, that's great. But the Bible says of itself that all scripture is inspired of God and that it is profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God, or God-breathed, as it can be translated. Every single word in the Bible is significant in the original manuscripts. Every single word is absolutely significant, placed there purposely by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said not one jot or tittle of the word would pass away. A jot and a tittle, he's referring to the Hebrew language there. And the jot and the tittle were the smallest little marks, little tiny uh, marks you can make with a pen in Hebrew. That is to say, every tiny mark of the word of God as breathed by God's spirit is significant. Read it carefully, read it prayerfully, read it frequently, and know that every word is God's word. Jesus' entire argument and their entire error in their theology hinged upon a single word in a single verse. That word, of course, was am. I am the God of Abraham. You see, in their minds, they were just breezing through the Scriptures one day and they just read, I was the God, or thought I was the God, but it says, I am the God. One little word, and we see there that that small detail was a big deal. The small detail was a huge deal. If you miss the detail, you miss an entire doctrine as they did. Now, having said that, those who study theology, they never want to develop a doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. They never want to develop a teaching about what the Bible has to say from a single word. That's not wise we don't do that. With biblical doctrine, we look that it's taught from the beginning to the end of the Bible. We look that it's in there entirely. So you don't build a whole doctrine off a single word, but you sure can miss a lot if you don't pay attention to the details in the word of God. And the doctrine that they missed and the doctrine that Jesus is referring to that is taught from the beginning to the end is the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. Stated simply as we speak about it for a minute, it's this. When we die... Our bodily life ceases temporarily, but our spirits go into eternity immediately. I want you to note this morning that the Bible does not teach that there is a purgatory. That is an invention of the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible doesn't teach that in any way whatsoever. We'll see that very clearly in a few moments. So, When we die, our bodily life ceases temporarily, but our spirits go into eternity immediately. That is, either with the Lord or in the place of torment, which is apart from the Lord for eternity. Heaven or hell. But there is coming a time when our spirits will be reunited with our bodies both for those who die righteous because of their standing in Jesus Christ and those who die in their sins. There is a resurrection, a bodily resurrection coming for both the righteous and the wicked, the forgiven and the unforgiven, those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. Jesus says it explicitly in John chapter 5. Turn there. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 28. John chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did good to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment all the dead will be bodily resurrected some to eternal life and some to eternal damnation judgment condemnation now if you read this verse completely out of context of the book of john in the entire bible you might think that it was a works based salvation we know better don't we to show that it's not you can just look in john chapter 3 verse 36 makes things very clear john 336 says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we know that it doesn't depend upon our works. It depends upon whether or not we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that is the good work that he's referring to. And the evil work that he's referring to is the rejection of Jesus as the Savior of the world. Now he says there, there is a resurrection unto life, and there is a resurrection unto judgment. And they will have to do with our physical bodies. I want you to know that when God created you, he created you body, mind, and spirit. And all three of those will abide for eternity. Very interesting. We'll see it develop in a minute. The moment we die, our spirits either go to be with the Lord or to be apart from the Lord in a place of torment. Immediately, we saw that last week when we looked at Luke chapter 16 in the story of Lazarus. Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man died, he had blown it, and he was immediately in a place of torment. There is no intermediary state, he didn't go to purgatory, he did not go to sleep. He went immediately to a place of torment. And the the, uh, Lazarus, the poor man, went to a place of blessing. It's called there Abraham's bosom. Jesus said to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Not first you've got to go to some other place and you've got to work off some stuff and deal with some stuff and some people might pray and try to get you out and this and that and the other. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus taught it explicitly. We see it exemplified in the Gospels. We see it in the Old Testament as well. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There's a resurrection for the righteous and the wicked, and which way you go depends upon what you do with Jesus. Now for the Christian, when the Christian dies bodily, there comes a temporary separation of his spirit from his body body stays in the ground or in the ocean or wherever you put it, but the Spirit goes to be with the Lord. The New Testament's very clear on that. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. For the Christian, when the Spirit departs the body, it goes to be with the Lord. And where is the Lord. The Bible says that he's seated at the right hand of God, that he's in the heavens. Philippians 1, 23 says the same thing. Paul again says, I am hard-pressed from both directions. I'm having some difficulties, he says. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, things were so difficult for him at this time. He said, man, it'd be wonderful to be done with this life and go home to be with the Lord. It is not an excuse for suicide. The Bible doesn't support that in any way. The Bible says, thou shalt not murder, and that includes yourself. But Paul lived with such a sense of eternity, he said, man, it wouldn't be a bad deal to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. The Bible makes it clear for the Christian. When they die, they immediately go to be with the Lord. And then there comes, there will come, this time when they are resurrected with their body. If you don't understand the doctrine and the biblical teaching of it, you hate it. This old body... Well, some like it more than others. Some of you hate it. I don't want this thing back. When do we get our bodies back and what will it be like? The Christian, that is the person who received Jesus Christ in their Lord and Savior between between the time of his ascension and the time of his coming, will receive their glorified body at the rapture. When Jesus comes for his bride, when he comes for the church, the Christian receives his glorified body at that time. We'll look at it in Scripture in a minute. Those who reject Jesus will not be reunited with their body until the great white throne judgment. That happens in Revelation chapter twenty. At the end of the millennial kingdom. Remember the end times now. Remember the last things, the order of last things. We have the church age or the, church of, the, the age of grace in which we live. The time from the cross until Jesus comes for his church. That is called the rapture of the church. After the rapture of the church comes the seven-year tribulation period. After the seven-year tribulation period comes the bodily return of Jesus Christ to earth the technical second coming to establish his kingdom on earth. That signals the beginning of the millennial kingdom. During the millennial kingdom, the thousand years of Christ reigning on earth, Satan is bound, that's good news. At the end of the thousand years comes the great white throne judgment. That is what people often refer to when they speak of judgment day. That is when those who died without the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, who immediately when they die go to a place of torment, will be resurrected in their bodily form, reunited with their spirits, judged according to their deeds. And any who had not been forgiven by Jesus Christ, had simply not asked for it and received it, will be thrown into a place called the lake of fire. That is what we refer to as hell. That is technically hell, and there it is forever. By the way, Revelation chapter 20 is your homework. Read all of Revelation chapter 20 after this service. You'll see there that in hell you will not be alone. But Satan is thrown in hell, and there he is tormented day and night. Satan is not the ruler of hell. It is not his domain where he is presiding over some party with all his friends. The Bible declares that for Satan, it is torment day and night. And for those who refuse to receive the love of God and his forgiveness, which is freely given through Jesus Christ, if they refuse his forgiveness, then they choose hell. And the Bible says that there's outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and a worm that consumes the flesh that never dies. It's horrible. By the way, every single one of us deserves that. Don't have a wrong theological idea and think, well, we all deserve heaven, but we just got to do thus and, so, thus and so to get it. None of us deserve heaven. We all deserve hell. That is why salvation is by the grace of God, the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. I'll show you in the Bible how it happens for the Christians. Remember, you're going to read Revelation chapter 20 later. And you'll see there the great white throne judgment and the bodily resurrection of the wicked. You will also see in Revelation chapter 20 when you read it later, the resurrection of those who were martyred for their Christianity in the tribulation period. They missed the rapture. They weren't Christians at the time. They get killed for their faith in the tribulation period. They immediately go to be the Lord with the Lord in their spirits. But you'll read in the middle of Revelation chapter 20 something called the first resurrection when they receive their bodies. But now let's look at how it will happen for you and I, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Go there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's before Timothy. All the T's in the New Testament are together. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd, Timothy and Titus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now we're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the last several verses. But here's another homework assignment. Your second homework assignment is to go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 will give you a long discourse on the resurrection from the dead and the rapture of the church. Makes things very clear. And Paul reasons there by the Spirit of God for it. I want you to read that later. It'll educate you. But for now, for time's sake... We're just going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, or ignorant about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, when it says asleep, it is not teaching something called soul sleep, which small segments of the church have believed in the past. That is not a biblical doctrine. The Bible never teaches that. In the New Testament, it often says sleep for a Christian who died. It's a euphemism or a nice way of saying a Christian who died. Where did the early church adopt this phraseology? They adopted it from the Lord himself. Remember when Lazarus had died and the Lord was summoned by Martha and Mary and he went with his disciples. He said, come on, disciples, we've got to go because Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they said, well, Jesus, what's the deal? Why are we going to go if Lazarus is just sleeping? And Jesus says, holy these boys don't get anything. He's dead. Read it later in the book of John. He says to him very clearly, he's dead. But they adopted that phraseology because it's not really proper to say of the Christian that he's dead because he's received eternal life. So Paul's talking here about people, Christians, specifically who have died. Their physical body is in the ground. Their spirit is with the Lord. It says in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, by the way, to be a Christian, you must believe that. That is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. If you do not believe that Jesus literally and physically died upon the cross and literally and physically rose again, then you can have something, you could have some nice religion, but you can't call it Christianity. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so, or in the same way, or with the same certainty, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those Christians that died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, Paul says, I ain't making this stuff up, that we who are alive, I want you to notice the phrase we there. We who are alive. Paul expected the rapture to happen in his lifetime. There's a doctrine taught in the Bible, the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ. He says we. Paul very much expected that the rapture would happen in his lifetime. That doesn't mean that Paul was wrong. The Lord set it up that every generation would be looking for the coming of their king. Paul says we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The Bible teaches that before the tribulation period Jesus will come for the church But when he comes, he will come with the spirits of those Christians who have died and their physical bodies at that moment, at the shout of the archangel, at the trump of God, will be raised from the dead and united with their spirits in their glorified bodies. Remember, when God saves you, he saves you body, mind, and spirit. And people often say, the body's going to be resurrected? Israel's always believed this except for the Sadducees. That's why they're Sadducee, because they didn't believe in this. But a Jewish friend of mine told me that. But the, uh, Israel's always believed, In fact, you go to Israel, and every single grave in Israel is facing the Temple Mount. Because they believe that when the Lord comes, and when he comes back to the Temple Mount, they will be resurrected from the dead, and they want to see him first thing they believe it, they've got the right doctrine, a little few funky things in there. But it says right here, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And sometimes people say, oh, what if you were cremated? What if you were cremated? What if you, what if, what if, what if you, your body's, what, an alligator ate you. There's no more body. The alligator ate you. He digested you. You're, You're not around. <laughs> you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. The scripture says the dead in Christ will rise first and the power of God is able to raise up the alligator-eaten person. Now, that's those who have died, our loved ones, Christians that are dead. At the rapture of the church, we will see them glorified. We will see them again But for you and I who remain at the moment of the rapture, it says in verse 17, then we, Paul was pre-trib, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice he does not physically return yet. That's after the tribulation at the second coming, taught in Matthew 24, taught in Zechariah chapter 12. Taught in Revelation chapter 19. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together and meet him in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, the discerning ear says, I didn't see the word or hear the word rapture in that verse. Yes, you did. You just don't know a lot of languages. Neither do I. But that phrase caught up in the Greek is harpazo. It means to be violently snatched away. Picture the rapture, harpazo. The Bible was first translated from Greek to Latin. The Latin word for harpazo or caught up is raptus, where we get our English word rapture. It's in the Bible. Be careful. Look at every word. And at that moment, we read, and this is why I gave you your homework to be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When we are raptured, it says that this perishable body will put on the imperishable. This mortal body will put on the immortal body that in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. There are those who will be alive on earth at the rapture of the church that will not taste death, but will immediately be transformed and they will be with the Lord, spirit and body in their glorified body. It's a wonderful doctrine. Paul said, comfort one another. With these words, it ought to affect the way that we live every day. So we understand that the resurrection is not the restoration of life as we know it. It is an entrance into a new life that is different. With regards to the resurrected body, what is it like? Well, remember Jesus. Jesus, after he was resurrected, he was recognizable, but not always immediately. There was something different those who weren't looking, they, they didn't always get it right away, but he was recognizable. There was something different, but there was something the same. George MacDonald, about the resurrection, says this, author and pastor, says, "...the new body must be like the old, not only that it must be the same body, with all that was distinctive of each from his fellow more visible than before, because the accidental, the unrevealing, the incomplete will have vanished." that which made the body what it was in the eyes of those who loved us will be tenfold there. In heaven, we will be recognizable. We will recognize one another and we will be more lovable in heaven than we ever were here. I would love to get a chance to share this doctrine with Eric Clapton. You know that song, No More Tears in Heaven? Listen, it's very sad. He wrote that song when his five-year-old son fell out of a window, died, And he says, "Will you know my name when I see you in heaven?" Eric Clapton there's looking for the hope of this doctrine that the Christian church has in the word of God. He's looking for that hope. He doesn't know, "Will you know my name? If we see each other in heaven, will we re- will I recognize my 5-year-old son? Will he recognize me?" Goodness, I'd love to share this with him. As one author said, when someone asks you, "Will you know me in heaven?" Answer and say, I have known you well here, and I will not be a bigger fool in heaven than I am now. I will know you, and you will know me. R. Kent Hughes, commentator and pastor, wrote on this subject, we will recognize people at once. Everything that was theirs will be perfected. Their bodies will be glorious. Amen." Amen. Grown to the eternal potential. Everyone will be six foot five and three quarters. My height. Their personalities will be at their fullest. God have mercy. Their wit, their charm, their tenacity, their love, they will be noble, beautiful, and regal, for they will be like Jesus. The New Testament says that when we meet the Lord, we shall be like Him in the glorified state. Our salvation having been completed. So it will be the same, and yet there will be differences. Jesus in his resurrected body, Jesus walked through walls, but it was a physical body, but it walked through walls like a spirit, and yet we know that he ate. Praise the Lord, there might be food in heaven. There is in Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see Jesus in his resurrected body in John chapter 21, eating some fish. Thank you, Lord. And yet, last thing. As we saw in Mark 12:25, and we have it back up on the PowerPoint for you in case you forgot it. When they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. There will be differences. We will not be married in heaven. No one is more sad about that than I am, believe me. But if you're sad, it's because you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. There will be a need for marriage in heaven. Let me explain why. Let me just say as an aside, when it says we will be like the angels, it means that we won't be given in marriage. We won't be married in heaven. It doesn't mean we'll have wings. That's, <laughs> that's a stupid idea. People think you get to heaven, you get your wings. When people die, they become angels. The Bible never teaches that. The angels were created from long past. They will always be angels. You will always not be an angel. So don't think you're going to get there and get some wings. I'm sorry to disappoint you. So, why are the angels who are in the presence of God, or why aren't the angels who are in the presence of God, and why won't we, when we are in the presence of God, be married? Why not? A few reasons. Number one, because death is defeated. When our bodies are glorified, it declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, your homework, that death is swallowed up that death is defeated by the power of the cross. And the death cannot even keep our physical bodies down, but God raises them. And so because death is defeated, in heaven there will be no more death. Therefore, there will be no reason for procreation. Therefore, there will be no sex in heaven. How do you know the difference between biblical heaven and man-made heaven? Man-made heaven has sex in it. The heaven that they speak about in Islam. The heaven that they speak about, the paradise that they speak about, is 70 virgins. That if they make it to paradise, they will have sex in heaven with these 70 virgins all the time. That is a man-made creation. The Mormon church. The Mormon church teaches that when we die... If we do things right, we can become the God of our own planet and have celestial sex creating spiritual babies for all of eternity. That is a man-made doctrine. Man wants there to be sex in heaven. There's no need for sex in heaven. There's no need for procreation. Not to say that sex is only procreation. Sex is wonderful. It's to be between a man and a wife. It is a good thing. Sex is not a bad thing. God created sex and God blesses sex when it is within the marriage context. And that is the only time that God blesses it. But in heaven, there won't be a need for it. We won't have it because we won't be married and we certainly won't be having premarital sex in heaven. Secondly, because we're in God's presence, there won't be the need of the help of the mate. Part of marriage is that we are given to help one another. Specifically, he says in the book of Genesis, that God made for Adam a helpmate. In the presence of God, there will not be the need of assistance and companionship will be fulfilled. J.C. Ryle, commentator, says this, Enjoying the full presence of God, men and women will no longer need the marriage union in order to help one another. Able to serve God without weariness and attend on Him without distraction, doing His will perfectly and seeing His face continually clothed in a glorious body, they will be like the angels in heaven. Won't need help from anybody. Won't need that sense of companionship. It does not suggest because there's no marriage, that there will be the slightest reduction in love. It's different. It's not the same thing but in heaven. It's a different world, people. It's a different thing altogether. But we will be ourselves at our ultimate best, and we will be more lovable and more capable of love than we ever were on earth or in these bodies. But keep in mind, the focus in heaven will not be upon you or others. That is another reason there will not be marriage. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that when someone is married, their first priority becomes their wife. The focus in heaven will be upon the throne of God and Him who sits upon it. All energy will be directed to the throne. All attention will be directed to the throne. And thirdly, when we get to heaven, we will be married to Christ. Read about it. More homework. Oy vey. Revelation chapter 19. Read about it later. The marriage supper of the Lamb. We are called the church, the bride of Christ. Israel is called the wife of God. And so when we get to heaven, marriage won't be needed because ultimately marriage is to be an earthly reflection of a heavenly reality. It is to be a reflection of the love between our Savior and us. Him being our groom and us being the bride. And all of the intimacy and all the wonder and all the commitment that comes with it. Earthly marriage is to be a reflection and a picture of that reality. When we get to heaven, that reality is fulfilled. We are the bride of Christ. We've gone through Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are wed. It is done. He is our husband. And all of our love, and devotion, and being, and doing will be wrapped up in worshiping him. Nobody will be disappointed. Nobody will say, oh, I wish. It's going to be perfect. just want to read a couple of scriptures to end. Revelation chapter 4. Here's where we end. Revelation chapter 4 gives us a picture of heaven. It's not a whole lot revealed about heaven in Scripture. It's interesting. In fact, Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. He wanted to get people's attention. But in the book of Revelation, we have three little snapshots, and we're going to look at them. We're just going to read them. It says in Revelation chapter 4, starting verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, John speaking, and behold, I want you to know how many times it says a throne. Okay? This is what is most obvious in heaven. is a throne of God. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in experience. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in experience. He's trying to describe something glorious. He doesn't have the words for it. He's got to use some earthy terminology here. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns upon their heads. That is the representation of the church in its fullness. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second like a calf, and the third had the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. It's different in heaven. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures, those ones with the six wings, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever, the 24 elders, the church, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed and were created. The most obvious thing in heaven is the throne of God, the one upon the throne. The most obvious thing is that the second most obvious thing in heaven is the worship being given to him. If you have any other idea of heaven other than that, you're mistaken. You're like this ad you see, you don't got it. We've got another beautiful picture, chapter five. Verse 8, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders again fell down before the Lamb, That is Christ Jesus, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song, saying, "'Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and didst purchase for God with thy blood, men from every tribe and tongue and nation. And thou hast made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth.'" And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. And after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which nobody could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped. God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to him, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, I don't know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb is in the center of the throne and shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Lord God, how we long for the day. How we long for the day when we will be in your presence. For the fullness, the completion of it. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, every loved one in you we've ever lost. Resurrected, recognizable, all of us. Preoccupied and consumed with you and your glory and your beauty. Lord, we don't understand it all, but we're humble enough to say, We believe you and we trust you. God, I just pray there's anyone in here today that does not know that that is their future, that they would immediately repent of their sins, ask you to forgive them according to what Jesus did on the cross and that you would give them the promise of eternal life and a second chance in this life, a clean slate. For all of us that know you, pray that we would join with the angels now. And we would bow down before you, that we'd taste heaven in this place and give you all the glory and the honor and the praise that is yours. Saints, let's worship him.